Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey listeners, Jessica here. Be sure to check out new episodes of Undetermined every Tuesday for free wherever you get your podcasts. For early and ad-free listening, check out Tenderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I feel like if somebody has disappeared and they don't have a vehicle, they don't have a cell phone to communicate, they don't have any means of paying for anything, at that point you have to treat it like it's a missing child. That means going door to door, going and looking under bushes and cars. So don't make excuses to me about manpower because that just means you don't want to. That's what I feel all of this boils down to is they just don't want to. But when they get a call that there's a body found, two and a half. Everybody. Everybody shows up. People in suits don't even talk to you. People in uniforms coming up and asking questions. And the one detective that wasn't there an hour and a half before is all of a sudden there. And, hey, man, how are you guys doing? We just did your job and we found our relative. How are you doing? You know, all of a sudden you have more than enough people to come out. That's kind of embarrassing. I was probably about where you see those, uh, those like concrete things over there. When I heard her yelling from over here, and then they ended up calling me, and I, I rushed back. But there was a stop train over here, so I had to hop over and walk and, and just, just kind of look down. That goes pretty deep. It's way down there. So it's it's crazy. And you guys see about where, where she lived just down the road. Not very far at all. So it, it was extremely close. Yeah, gives me chills being back here. This is... On Thursday, August 22nd, 2019, about a week after Jessica's disappearance, sisters Audrey and Amanda, along with their cousin Doug, made the long trek from Mississippi to New Orleans. First stop, NOPD, District 3. They wanted to speak to Detective Lund, 
But when they arrive, he's not there. So they make the best of their time and start looking around Jessica's Lakeview neighborhood, the last place she was seen. Scouring a map of the area, they decide to look just on the outskirts of the residential part of the neighborhood. Something drew them to an overgrown area just past an interstate overpass. There's a pumping station and a hillside that leads up to some train tracks, dividing Lakeview and its adjacent neighborhood. I'm gonna let Audra kind of walk you guys over there. It was a little ways down there. So me, Doug, and Amanda got here by the pumping station number seven and was scouting out places to look at. Amanda stayed in the car to talk to Maria to tell her what was going on, what our next plan was. And me and Doug got out the car and we went over the railroad tracks. We crossed the train and he told me, go look over that way by the woods. And that's what I did. I went over there and I was walking alongside of the train and I seen like a white tarp down. There's like a like a, a hill with rocks on it. And I seen a white tarp and I thought, oh my God, I hope my sister's not underneath there. So I started to walk down there, but I slid all the way down and my foot hit the tarp. And I just remember thinking, please don't let my sister be underneath there. And I pulled up the tarp and she wasn't there and I was I was so relieved. Though Audrey felt a sense of relief in this moment, her search continued. She had a strong feeling about this area and felt something calling to her, urging her to keep looking. And then literally maybe five, ten feet, I just stayed down there and I jumped on a railroad tie. And then I turned around and then as clear as day, I heard a voice that said, no, look again. And... I looked again, and that's when, I, that's when I seen her legs, and I seen her back, and I started screaming. No one heard me. I was just sitting there screaming. I walked back up the hill, and then I walked back down, and I looked again because I thought maybe that's not what I'm seeing. And um, I fell to the ground and just started screaming. And, and then I called my sister on the phone. And I said, I found Jessica. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. She was just laying there. And I knew it was my sister. Like, I knew it was her. And it was her knee that was black. And she had black shorts. She had a black shirt. Her feet were covered by some bushes. And then, like, her head was kind of covered by some bushes, too. But I could see her. She was just laying there like someone set her down or something, like a piece of trash. She was only two and a half months from her house. She was a person. And no matter what what she was into or anything, she didn't deserve to die like that. We were all kind of shocked. You know, we were all kind of kind of scared, obviously. Reality kind of kicks in. This is Jessica's cousin, Doug Schmidt, who accompanied Audrey and Amanda in their search for Jessica. Doug works in the funeral home industry and sees the deceased on a daily basis. Still, the scene was jarring to him. She wasn't facing us. She was facing another direction, and she was kind of more or less sitting in a fetal position, and the surroundings around didn't really seem really natural as far as, okay, well, I don't know what's going on here. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a detective. But I told him, I said, look, if this is her or if it's not, this is still a dead body, and we need to get away from this right now and call the police. And they did just that. And as they waited... Amanda called Jessica's friend Maria to let her know what had happened. She was like, we found a body, police are on the way. Like, just that quick, so fast. We're going to look around, we found her. And I remember, like, just howling like a banshee and, like, walking around my living room in circles and being like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, Jess. Like, I knew it was her. Back at the scene, it wasn't long before the area was flooded with emergency personnel and police, including Detective Lund. When they showed up, it was a few detectives, and we walked them to where we found her. And of course, they're doing their thing. They're asking questions about what's the story here. And we kind of filled them in a little bit about what we knew up to that point. So look, she was missing. We came down because it had been 10 days and we were worried about our relative and went over everything with them. And of course they took pictures, coroner's office showed up and removed her and all. And I remember 
my cousin Mandy really wanted to see because at the point, you know, you couldn't really see anything and, and the level of decomp, 10 days, Louisiana heat in that area, I mean, it, it kind of was rapid. We asked him, said, look, these are her sisters. Mandy here wants to see her because she wants to know if this is her or not because they had this gut feeling that, look, no, that's, that's my sister. I remember him saying, the level of decomp's bad. Soft tissues are, are removed. It's, you don't want to see. The family was certain it was Jessica, but sadly, due to the level of decomposition from the New Orleans heat, they wouldn't get a positive identification that day. In fact, they didn't feel like they got much of anything out of the NOPD that day. According to Doug, the scene was cleared within an hour. Looking back, I kind of expected a little bit more. They interviewed us, of course. They took some pictures of the immediate area, and then that was it. They didn't really expand past just that one little section. And that always seemed kind of odd to me. It really did. Really, really odd. It didn't seem like it wasn't as big a deal as it should have been to them. This was a missing persons case that was reported missing. This wasn't like, oh, she was missing and no one reported. It's like, no, they knew. They knew our level of interest, our level of involvement. They knew it. The detective that we were going to see that day showed up on the scene and talked to us. You know, of course, we're kind of looking at him like, I mean, the house is a straight shot from here. This seems awfully close for someone missing 10 days. And three amateurs who don't even live in the area, have never been to this area, can put two and two together and just start looking around. Even looking back, it just still feels odd to me because I expected more. I expected a lot more. And it just just never happened. It just never happened. And when the NOPD wrapped up at the scene, what was left was a police report. A fairly brief one at that. The incident is listed as an unclassified death and specifically states that it is not a result of a hate crime or domestic violence. The narrative says in part. At approximately 12.36 p.m., police officer Everett Briscoe was dispatched to the intersection of Orleans Avenue and Kenilworth Street to investigate a report of a miscellaneous incident, whereas the reporting person, Amanda Barnes, stated while searching for her sister, who was reported missing, she located the deceased body of an unknown white female. Officers reported her as wearing a gray shirt and blue shorts, and also noted that she was in an advanced stage of decomposition. And there you have it. In essence, that's the police report. As Doug, Audrey, and Amanda drove away from the scene that afternoon, they were at a loss. The only thing they knew for sure in that moment was that Jessica was no longer missing. She was gone. Forever. You know, there was a lot of emotions going on. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of sadness. And and it just felt like it was just like a roller coaster. I know we all had hoped that she was still alive somewhere. And you kind of hang on to that. And then you start hoping that maybe this wasn't her. Because me not being near as close 
to Jessica, as my two cousins were, I felt the degree of sadness because I mean I can't I, I can't even imagine. I couldn't. You know, I, I have three sisters of my own and even trying to look at it from their perspective just makes me just want to shut down. Eventually reality would set in, but it would take some time. It wasn't until nearly three months later in November of 2019 that the body would officially be matched to Jessica through DNA. According to the family, the delay was a result of the NOPD misplacing the original DNA sample submitted by Jessica's mother. Nonetheless, they got their answer, a rather unwanted one, and there would be more to follow. Two months later, January of 2020, would turn out to be a quite eventful month for the case. The coroner listed both the cause and manner of death as undetermined. After a coroner's examination, they typically include the cause and manner of death. Manner of death can be natural, accidental, suicide, homicide, or if it's unknown but is not considered natural causes, they can classify it as undetermined. In Jessica's case, her injuries, which we'll get to in a minute, did not indicate exactly how she died. Therefore, they also ruled her cause of death as undetermined. This obviously didn't sit well with the family. It seemed they were even further from closure than they thought, and everything was up in the air. To make matters worse, that same day, Audrey and Amanda learned that they wouldn't even be able to lay their sister to rest. Her remains were released to her husband, Justin. This came as a surprise to them, and they were crushed. And as if that wasn't enough bad news for one month, the most shocking revelation would come the last day of the month, January 31st, 2020, when the coroner released the autopsy report to the family. They hoped it would provide some answers. Instead, it would only raise more questions. We were given access to the report by Jessica's family. Here's what it says. Jessica's time of death was listed as August 22nd, 2019, 105 p.m., which is when she was found and officially pronounced deceased at the scene. The autopsy indicates several injuries to Jessica's body, including a broken nose and jaw. She also sustained post-mortem injuries, meaning they happened after she was deceased. Those include a broken rib and C4 vertebrae, which is located in the neck. At the time of her autopsy, Dr. O'Sullivan, a forensic pathologist with the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office, collected evidence samples from Jessica's body, including two envelopes of fingernail clippings, a heart charm necklace from her neck, and her clothing, a black tank top, black shorts, pink underwear, and a pair of black shoes, which contradicted what the NOPD reported her wearing, a gray shirt and blue shorts. The doctor also notates a sun and moon tattoo on her lower right abdomen. Following the autopsy, a toxicology screening was conducted by forensic toxicologist Dr. Sherry Katkenko with NMS Labs. 
testing shows levels of methamphetamine, amphetamine, alcohol, and prescription drugs, including bupropion and hydroxybupropion. The report raises a lot of questions, and I wanted to better understand what everything meant. To do that, I sought out an expert, a woman I had connected with a few years back, ironically in New Orleans during CrimeCon, an annual true crime convention, where she was speaking as a forensics expert. My name is Dr. Kimberly Masnick. I am an assistant professor of criminology and victimology at Indian River State College, as well as the founder and director of the Institute for Cold Case Investigations, which works directly with law enforcement agencies going through cold cases that are in our local area. While Dr. Masnick hasn't conducted an official investigation into this case, we asked her to look over the documents we have and share her thoughts. In the Jessica Easterly case, Jessica was found 10 days after she actually went missing. She's in New Orleans. She's in a fairly good state of decomposition from the trunk up. So the body is, Jessica's body is removed and she is taken to the examiner's office. And when they receive her, she is received in the bag upside down. And the process for her, very little is actually done because of the level of decomposition. And you have to think it's New Orleans is very much like where I live in Florida. It's extremely hot. It's extremely humid, which is going to make the person, their level of decomposition happen much quicker. So she's not in the most pristine condition she can be in to run all of the tests that would normally be run. They do go ahead and do toxicology on her, but unfortunately they can't take it. We can't get blood samples. She's been out there for 10 days. So either her blood has dried up or because of the decomposition, the blood has flowed into her body cavity. So therefore it's compromised So the one thing that they're really able to do is to send off and have a piece of her liver examined. Again, you have to remember that Jessica's liver has now been out and in the public sun, the this, that, and everything else for 10 days. So it is also going through changes both chemically and physically. There are many challenges experts face when dealing with a highly decomposed body as was the case here. Dr. Masnick puts it simply, if you don't test for it, you're not going to find it. But in Jessica's case, they were able to find some things. So there were only about five or six drugs that were tested for that we know of. Most of them come back to either licit drugs that she was on potentially for depression or she was being given by somebody for depression or they are items that could have shown up in her liver, in her system, just simply due to this. The ethanol is absolutely an alcohol, a drug that shows up in the system due to decomp. When I look at the things that are said about Jessica in the report, the reports say she's either a very low level user of meth 
because it doesn't say anything about, you know, major blemishes to her skin, her teeth are in fair condition. There's nothing that we see when we look at people that are major meth addicts. However, she says, it's important to understand how meth metabolizes in the body. Meth breaks down very quickly based on when you take it and how much you take and how you take it. So it's more than likely that if they're finding meth in her body, that it was very recently taken and it would not have been ingested because the stomach would have dissolved it. That would lower the level very quickly. Meth isn't going to increase because of decomposition or anything else. If meth is there, then meth is there. We asked Dr. Masnick if there's a potential overdose here. You have to remember, they were not able to run tests as extensively as they would have if it had been a fresh or an interior passing. You have to realize they used her liver to do most of the testing. So the liver itself was also going through changes. So yes, it is very likely that it did go down. But then again, I still have to, I'm speculating and it's based on just my knowledge of what the average meth addict looks like. One, if she's not a a consistent user and two, even a heavy dose, 10 hours later, only half of it's gonna be in her system. And then after that, you've got the 10 days until we even pick her up. And then you've got extra time before the autopsy even happens. So there's no way of knowing exactly how much meth was in her system at the time of her death. You have to go back and look. There's nothing, nobody mentions anything about her. The husband is saying, you know, they were taking a nap. So it's not like they were, they were at a party. There's nothing there that jumps out to me and says, that she took a heavy dose of meth at that point in time, even though there's also nothing that tells me that she didn't. And while Jessica had traces of methamphetamine in her system at the time of her toxicology examination, her family doesn't believe she was habitually using meth. It's also unclear what exactly Jessica had prescriptions for and whether or not the drugs found in her system at the time of her death were prescription. But apart from the drugs, I also wanted to know if there was any way to determine what Jessica's cause of death could have been based off her injuries. She was found with basically her nose is broken and her jaw is broken. And they do not state, so I can only assume or presume that that was either pre-mortem or anti-mortem. They don't ever mention whether or not there's any blood in or around those areas. So I can't tell exactly at what point she received those, but they do state that her C4 vertebrae as well as her rib were broken and those are post-mortem. I am feeling based on what very little information we have that this is Jessica's a dump site. Because we have such little information, that's why the coroner up there turns around and gives us a manner and cause of death of being 
undetermined. As much as I don't like it, undetermined is, is actually probably the best thing to leave it at at this point in time. Although Dr. Masnick is of the belief that Jessica's body was dumped at the site, implicating some degree of foul play, she says, ultimately, there's just not enough information to know for sure, and adds that a classification of homicide would be an overreach without definitive evidence on her body to support it. But before we move on, I want you to know there was something else found on her body that further supports the theory of it being moved, something my partner Todd and I discussed at length. We do know from a source that was at the scene when her body was discovered, who makes their living working with dead bodies, she had liver mortis on the outside of her knee that was the opposite knee of the knee that was touching the ground. Let's break that down for someone who may not know what postmortem liver mortis is, because I had to have you explain it to me. And so let's begin with Jessica's found laying on her side. Right. Yeah. For just argument's sake, we're not saying which side she was discovered on. Right. But if she was discovered on her left side, then we would be talking about the right knee and the liver mortis had set in on the outside of that right knee, which is facing the sky, pointed straight up at the sky. From a, a layman or detective's understanding of what liver mortis is and what it occurs, it's post-mortem lividity, which means it happens after death. So about 20 minutes after you die, the red blood cells start to separate themselves from the plasma because your heart's not beating anymore and it's not circulating the blood. So it works its way out of vessels and whatnot into tissue and then it pulls and it's falling because of gravity toward the ground. So they're able to determine how you were positioned at the time you died. And it would mean that you laid there in that position for a minimum probably of two hours, probably closer to six, the way this was described. So what this proves is she died laying on one side. She was found laying on the opposite side. Right. Between this revelation and everything we discussed with Dr. Masnick, there's plenty to process here. And still, something that gnaws at me is just how close her body was to her house. So now, with all of this in mind, Todd and I decide to go back to the spot where Jessica was found, this time at night. It's eerie. Visibility is lacking. I'm on edge with every little noise I hear. It's a little unsettling out here this late at night. It's almost 10 o'clock. It's dark. It's desolate this time of night. Quite the contrast from the bustling neighborhood we first visited in the daytime. Now, no one is around. And one lonely streetlight illuminates a small patch of street and grass. Now, in August of 2019, this grassy area was overgrown, very weedy, you know. It didn't look like it does now. Now, it's pretty manicured. I mean, 
it could probably use a mow, but it looks like it's been mowed recently, within a week or so, I'd say. There's a little pull-in area, a little, a little cutout in the curb, so that vehicles can pull into this lot, and it splits the lot in the middle. So, if it was, this light wasn't here then, it was really dark, you could pull in there, and if it were overgrown, you could pull anything out of your car and just slide it. We find out, after leaving New Orleans, the light was, in fact, newly installed this year. If they pull in to this, I'm gonna say now, you were, you were mentioning this, this uh, pull-in kind of divides this, this area. So you got half the lot over here. The other half on the other side is not far at all from another house. No, from where I'm standing now, I could throw a baseball and hit that house. So it's, it's, it's risky. It's a risky spot, even though it's dark and it is visually and aesthetically separated from this very nice addition they lived in. It's perplexing how she ends up this close to her house if you're wanting to conceal her. Right. There are many, many, many places we've seen driving around within minutes of driving, a couple of minutes, that would seemingly be easier to conceal long-term, possibly forever. This is so close. And not only that, you have way more privacy in these other areas. You're way less likely to be spotted being parked there or doing something wrong there. I mean, granted, we're, we're talking about, you know, this is kind of creepy, it's dark, it looks different than the other side of the overpass, all that. Yet we are very, very close to houses and people, and that's never a great strategy for dumping a dead body. Yeah, and, and as we have discussed, the location could have been the opportunity that presented itself to do something quickly and with haste, right. as opposed to planning and thinking of a, a location that would be better suited to conceal. It's hard to believe that this was anyone's master plan. If, right. if any time at all was invested in, what should I do with this woman's body now? Where should I put it? Then I doubt this was plan A. We didn't stay long, but seeing this place at night did add some perspective. It's not the best place to hide a body by any stretch of the imagination. But at night, it is a very easy place to get away with it, albeit if only temporarily, which is why Todd believes this was not some thought-out plan, rather a rushed decision made on the fly. So at this point, we have at least some clarity as to how her body got to where it was found, but what about the cause and manner of death? That's something that still seems difficult to draw any conclusions, not to mention who's responsible. Theories were beginning to swirl, especially between those closest to her. But what I really wanted to know is what Justin thought. After all, he was Jessica's husband. They lived together. He was the last person to see her. Jessica's family had virtually no contact with Justin during this time, but he was talking. One of the people he was talking to was Jessica's friend, Erica, who you may remember from episode one. She attended their wedding, and while she got to know Justin a little, they certainly weren't close. But shortly after Jessica went missing, 
Erica received a text from Justin, which would ultimately turn into an extended conversation spanning from August 15th, 2019 to February 26th, 2020. Erica sent me screenshots of their text conversation. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Let's begin where their conversation started on August 15th, 2019, one day after Jessica was reported missing and one week before she was found. The text messages will be voiced by actors. Hey, it's Justin. Hey, what happened to Jessica? I just saw the post on Facebook. She left sometime after 12 p.m. yesterday. I was asleep and I have no idea where she is or if she's okay. At first, I didn't know what to believe. I was like, what is going on? Because I saw the post on Facebook where he said, Jessica, where are you? Grace misses you. And I'm like, what do you mean? I texted him. I was like, where is Jessica? He said, I don't know. Grace has been throwing up. She's worried sick. And I was hopeful that he had nothing to do with it. You can actually see this in Erica's text. She was there for Justin during this time. Sure, she had her questions about Jessica's disappearance, and occasionally she'd throw out an idea of how to maybe find her. But for the most part, 
She was there to empathize. You need to be there for Gracie. Hang in there and keep in touch. Don't be too hard on yourself. And by his responses, Justin seemed to appreciate her kindness. I'm going to try and take a nap. If I hear anything, I'll call you immediately. Thanks for being a good friend. In a way, it seemed like Erica became Justin's sounding board. They texted frequently. Sometimes it was even lighthearted. But for the most part, it was serious. They both wanted to find out what happened to Jessica. On August 29th, Erica asked Justin for an update. Nothing today? Do you remember saying anything or doing anything or her saying anything the last day you saw her that would help find her? Justin responds the following day, August 30th, at 2.26 in the morning, giving the full story of what happened the day Jessica went missing. I just want to note that at this point, Jessica's body had been found, but neither Erica nor Justin seemed to know that. Here's their exchange. Gone over that day in my mind with police, even my daughter, more than just a few times. The problem with that day is there isn't a lot to it. Justin explained how exhausted he was that day between getting Grace ready to go back to school and Jessica coming out of what he called a depressive cycle after a flare-up with her fibromyalgia. He remembered sleeping in that morning and waking up to find Jessica in the kitchen doing laundry. She asked if I was hungry, and I said yes. We talked about Grace, school for a while, and she said she was going to put a pizza in the oven. She came back in the room when the pizza was ready, and we ate and watched TV. After we ate, she said that I looked tired, and I was abnormally tired, because Grace had just gotten out of the hospital and I was getting her uniform for school, school supplies, all kinds of stuff, and I didn't have any help from Jessica because she was feeling like crap and sleeping a lot. So I said, yes, I am. And she said that she had to move the clothes to the dryer and she'd come lay down too. She went in the kitchen with the plate, and I remember coming back in and getting in the bed. That's the last thing I remember before Grace woke me up after getting home from school. That's when this all began. I don't know. There's not a lot to it, but that's what happened that morning. This should all sound pretty familiar to you, as it's the same narrative he gave to the NOPD. But there's one minor inconsistency. If you remember from the previous episode, Justin told the first NOPD unit that came to his house for the wellness check that when he woke up, he went into the kitchen and saw the pizza Jessica made. Later that night and early the next morning, he told the second NOPD unit who filed the missing persons report that he and Jessica ate pizza rolls together in bed. And now he tells Erica Jessica made a pizza and they ate it in bed together while watching TV and that after taking their dishes to the kitchen and switching out the laundry, Jessica returned to bed and lay down with him. Of course, Erica had no knowledge of this So, as Justin answered whatever questions she had and described the events of that day, Erica took it all at face value. Her angle at the time was to simply try and figure out what happened to her friend. 
And ironically, the moment her and Justin's conversation started drifting into theories about what happened, that's when things started to take a turn. Nothing in my mind pointed to the fact that it could have possibly been him. Until the more he started texting me and the more I started talking to Maria and he would contradict himself. Once Erica got in touch with Maria, for the first time, she started hearing Maria's side of things. All the while, Justin was throwing out a range of theories about what might have happened to Jessica. A stalker, a creepy neighbor. She admitted herself to the hospital, and the list goes on. He even tried to feed me the story that she's online. She must have got a new phone probably somebody she's with. She met up with a new guy because she signed on a messenger. He goes, go look, you can see it's active. So I would message her through messenger. And of course I would get a response. I'd be like, is this you? Where are you? I'm worried sick. And a response would come back. So then I would call through Facebook messenger because you can call. And then he answers the phone. And I'm like, what the fuck, Justin? And I was pissed. I was livid. I was at work on my lunch break. And I'm like, why are you answering the phone? He goes, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean, what do I mean? You said she was on Messenger. I just called her through Messenger, and you're answering what is going on. And would just completely come up with some random story again. And it was just, it was crazy. But once news was out that Jessica's body had been found, he settled on one theory, suicide. I'm sure they've all jumped on the Maria bandwagon. I mean, why not? Everyone else has, and it's a better story than the truth. Let's see, Jessica had mental illness and committed suicide, or Justin's a no good piece of shit because Maria says so. He must have had something to do with it. Yeah. I can guess which one's easier for people to deal with. In fact, he seemed certain that Jessica had taken her own life and that everyone would realize it soon enough. After all this shit's over and the information I've come across along with the truth that I've been saying all along will be validated by the coroner's findings and the police close the case, you know what will change? Nothing. Not a damn thing. My image in people's minds will still be the same. Grace is going to be left with the legacy of a mom who committed suicide and a dad that everyone blamed except the police, and she'll still be gone. And most people will be left with more questions than answers. Like, I laid into him. I was like, what the fuck did you do to her? I mean, I, I just went... Off. I, I couldn't, couldn't fake being nice anymore. You say you miss her and claim it was suicide. But you tell me, why in the hell should I ever believe you? You haven't done anything but thrown blame the other way. I tried to believe you. I tried to empathize with you. But you have done nothing to make me believe otherwise. You say you're distraught because Grace won't have her mom to bring her to dances. But you tell me, who's really at fault? Did you just get too mad at her? 
Did she try to leave you? Jesus, Justin. What the fuck? She was one of my best friends. Erica, I could respond to this in a number of ways. Most of them would not make either of us feel very good. But I will say this. Jessica meant the world to me. Always has. And if you or anyone else wants to blame me, I totally understand. And I'll tell you why. None of you have any idea what the fuck I've been going through or the lengths I've gone to see that Jess was taken care of in every possible way. I've come to understand why you all blame me through counseling and fighting to keep my own sanity. By January 2020, Justin sent his final text messages to Erica. I promise you, I miss Jessica minute to minute and am really struggling with life. I swear on my kids, I didn't have anything to do with what happened. But what else can I say or do to prove it? So many people have been so busy making me out to be a monster. I really cannot believe it still. I understand completely. It's hard to live here in some ways, and it's a comfort in a few others. Every morning I wake up, I still think she's next to me. Until I wake up and it's like going through initial shock every day for about 30 minutes. Until my brain realizes what's happening. It's fucking torture. Erica, I really don't want to be here. At all. Undetermined is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Jessica Knoll, and produced by Dennis Cooper and Todd McComas, with additional production by Whitney Bozarth. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Caleb Melcher, Dayton Cole, and Pat Kicklighter of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Station 16. Voice acting by Whitney Bozarth and Paul Friels. You can follow Undetermined Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter at Undetermined Pod. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, undeterminedpod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And finally, if you have any information about this case, call Crime Stoppers at 1-877-903-7867. The tone and inflection used by voice actors is not contextually accurate and is a matter of creative interpretation. 